0: Welcome everyone. Good morning to you. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church and delighted to be so. I'm the luckiest man in the world. Uh, Good morning to all of you in cafe worship this morning. A special good morning to all of you from Liberty University with Exodus, the praise band. You've been with us all weekend. It has been an honor and a blessing to worship with you all. God bless you as you return back home today. In this room, Brian and Tina Ahern, so delighted to welcome you guys. We love you so much. It must say something about Perry, Oklahoma, when Woodburn, Kentucky becomes like your favorite vacation spot. Uh, (laughs) If this is a great place to go for a weekend getaway, then then we must live in paradise and we just don't know it. Uh, But welcome to you. I would just love you so much, and I can't wait to catch up with you later on today. Everybody, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. One of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. That doesn't mean you've heard it before, even though you've probably read it. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan in a sermon series entitled Stories Jesus Told. We're simply going through the Gospels and looking at these parables, these stories that Jesus told to find out how they speak to us today, and the Good Samaritan is one that definitely needs to speak to us in our world today. Uh, several years ago, there's a really famous and horrible story of a woman named Kristen Clorty who lived outside of Boston Kristen shared the news with her co-workers one day, just out of the blue, that she had ovarian cancer. It was a new diagnosis and and a devastating diagnosis. Her friends loved her and they rallied around her there at work. She began treatments at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute there. And uh, her friends continued to support her through all of that. She lost her hair and they supported her through all of that. Then the news came that the treatments at that particular cancer center were not successful, she would have to go out of state for treatments that insurance would not cover. At that point, her friends became very, very involved in helping her raise money to pay for her treatments. They organized bake sales, they did yard sales, they had a, a giant road race where people would pay money to run a distance and all of that money going to support Kristen's cancer treatment. So. You probably can begin to understand the rage and betrayal that everyone felt when it became news that she had faked it all. She faked it. She never had cancer. She never had chemotherapy. She never had the first treatment. She uh, shaved her own head uh, so that people would think she was in treatment. And she had faked the whole thing. Not even her family knew that she did not have cancer. It it, it became a rather important court case because she was taken to court for fraud. It's that kind of story right there, though, that makes a lot of people say, there you go. That's what happens when you try to help people. You try to love and you you get burned, so I'm finished. And, And honestly, a lot of us sort of live with that sort of cynical attitude, even though we are the people of God, and even though we have stories like this that speak into our hearts, we still think that because the world is as it is, that it's just somehow not worth it to try to reach out to people in love. Honestly, it's hard to imagine that we live in a world where you can reach out in love and get burned occasionally. But but honestly, that's the world we live in, and it's hard to think about that. The only thing harder to think about, though, is, is what it would be like to live in a world where nobody reaches out in love. And with that, we go to Luke chapter 10. It's an amazing passage. Luke chapter 10. We're going to start back in verse 25 so that you can get the context, the the setting for the parable. Let's just jump in. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. All right? So this whole story, this whole parable comes out of what kind of setting? It's a test. An expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. You know this is going to go well. Slipped the test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus another question, well, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A certain man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. Well, the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes. Now you go and do the same. All right. Go back with me. Verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him a question. So the whole thing is a test. It is a test. So, so the question is, who's, who's testing whom? Who, who's testing whom? Answer me. In, in the first sense, the lawyer, the, the expert in the law, he's like an Old Testament scholar, we could say. He's going to test Jesus. Okay, that in itself is just sort of laughable, but he's going to test Jesus, God in the flesh, this expert in the Old Testament. But we understand that if that's what he thinks, there's another sort of test going on. And what sort of test would that be? Jesus testing the man. It's not just that this expert, this Old Testament scholar could possibly test Jesus, but Jesus is going to test the man. And we see that begin to unfold in, in the passage, but you've got to understand, surely you're catching on by now what parables do. That man is not the only one being tested by this story. Yesterday in this very room, Dean I had a question and answer session with some of the, the some of the students and one of the girls asked me a, a really interesting question. She just simply said, how can I expect to build my entire life around a dead book? I mean, I know the Bible, this is what she said. I know the Bible is, is important, but, but isn't it still just a bunch of stories that somebody told 2,000 years ago? Okay, she was honest, and, and I really, really appreciated her question. I really appreciate the girl. But think about what she said, the the Bible. Isn't it just a bunch of stories that somebody told 2,000 years ago? How can you expect me to build my life around a dead book? Well, first off, certainly all of you know that the Christian faith is not to build our lives around a dead book. It is to build our lives, center our lives around a relationship with the living Lord. Who we discover in Scripture? the Christian faith is a living relationship with the living Christ. The, the Bible is, is, is the Word of God given us to sustain us in our faith, but we're not building our lives around a book, much less a dead book, and, and that was the next thing I said. it's not a dead book. The Bible itself says that it's living and active. it lives. So what this means is the stories in Scripture are not dead stories. They are stories that were originally told sometimes 2,000 years ago. But here's the thing. When you read the Bible, and, and let me just stop right there. It doesn't work if you don't read it. You understand that, right? It doesn't work if you don't read it. The fact that you have one on your nightstand, that's beautiful. You should probably dust that thing and read it. It doesn't work if you don't read it. But when you read the Bible and you read it with seriousness, you will soon learn that these are not just dead stories that somebody else told 2,000 years ago. When you read these stories, they become your story. And when you listen to this story, that the story of the Good Samaritan, no matter how many times you think you've heard it, you haven't really heard it until you begin to understand that this is somehow your story. This is your story. And it's not just that the Old Testament scholar is testing Jesus. It's not even just that Jesus is testing this man. Although both of those things took place back 2,000 years ago. But when we read this story today, this story is going to test you. This story is going to test me. This story is the living and active word of God that is sharp and able to separate bone from marrow. This story can cut you to pieces. It is powerful and it's going to teach you something about your life if you'll listen. So there's a test going on. Parables always do that. So the man asks a question, He just simply says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, again, he's not asking that question because he wants to know. Understand that. He's not asking because he he wants to know something that he thinks Jesus can tell him. He's only doing this to test Jesus, or you might say he wants to embarrass Jesus. One way or the other, it's not a sincere, honest question. It is a question that is crafted in such a way to try to bring Jesus down. Jesus knows this stuff and he doesn't really, as you'll notice, he doesn't entertain a lot of that from the beginning. He just sort of says, well, you've read the scriptures, what does it say? And then the man answers, what does he say? And this too is interesting. He says, well, the Old Testament says you should love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Interesting yesterday, same room, same question and answer session. One of the girls asked, what do you do with the Bible where the Old Testament has this God who is angry and this God who orders the, the slaughter of so many people and so many wars? And, and then you get to the New Testament and, and there's God in the flesh, Jesus, who shows us such a different face of God. It's, it, Jesus is loving and forgiving and welcoming and he turns the other cheek and How do you hold together the Old Testament and New Testament when they seem to have such different messages, such different pictures of God? Uh, Understand, if that's the impression you've gotten, you haven't read the Old Testament very carefully because even the Old Testament scholar here who doesn't have the New Testament yet, talking to Jesus, he says that if you want to sum up the salvation in the Old Testament, it still boils down to what? Love. The Old Testament is still a, 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 an incredible revelation of a God of love whose will for us is that we learn to love, live a life of love. Love the Lord your God first with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and then love your neighbor. So if you boil it all down, and, and even this even this particular scholar understands what the Old Testament teaches, it's love. Our, our obligation is to love. So it turns out real quickly, he's going to test Jesus. He's going to embarrass Jesus, but Jesus makes it obvious that this man has asked a question that he already knew the answer to. You get that? I mean, Jesus is really to say, and then the man answers, and then the man realizes that he's got egg on his face because he was going to embarrass Jesus, but now it's kind of clear that he asked a question that he already knew the answer to. So now he's going to try to do what? Justify himself. What does that mean? He's going to try to save face. He, he was going to embarrass Jesus, but he just kind of embarrassed himself. So now he's going to just try to, to try to spin it around a little bit. So he says, "Well, then," and he follows up with another question: "Who's my neighbor?" Okay, now, now we're cooking. Now it's going to be a debate. Now we're going to go deeper. Who's my neighbor? This is so awesome. You just absolutely have to love Jesus and and, and the way his mind works and the way he deals with people. Who's my neighbor? What kind of question is that? Now, if the first question was not very sincere, I promise you this one is because this is a real question. If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, then, then who is my neighbor? You like that question? You want the answer to that question? We all want the answer to that question because that question in itself sort of implies the opposite question, which is our real question. It's not so much that he wants to know who is my neighbor. What he wants to know is who's not my neighbor, right? Because if I'm told to love my neighbor, then then I need to know who exactly you're telling me to love. So, the question is framed positively, who is my neighbor? But the actual question is, who's not my neighbor? Who is not my neighbor? Because, uh, honestly, you and I simply cannot possibly imagine or fathom or accept the idea of love without limits. But the Old Testament, which teaches us, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Do you understand? That's love without limits. That's devotion to a God, the kind of devotion where you give everything that you have, all your mind, all your soul, all of your strength. You surrender everything to this God. And then while you're at it, you love your neighbor as yourself. And the implication is... Everyone, all your neighbors, every single man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of the planet is your neighbor. God so loved the world, the Scripture says, and if you're going to love this God, then you're going to have to learn to have His love in your heart, and it is a love for the world. It is a love without limits. But you and I just simply don't do very well with the idea of a love without limits. We can't wrap our head around that because our love is limited, I mean, we can talk about loving neighbors, and we'll do that all day long. And as long as I keep saying the word neighbor, you'll listen and you'll follow me in this sermon. But listen, if we just switch that word to something like, I don't know, homosexuals. If we said that we should love homosexuals, some of you immediately aren't listening to me anymore. Do you Pastor Tim said in the sermon this morning, he loves homosexuals. Well, I do. I do. And if you don't, there's something wrong with your heart. Because we're talking about loving without limits. Who's my neighbor? Who's not my neighbor? That's what you want to know, isn't it? Who can I exclude? Let me learn to draw a line, then I can put some people on the other side, and I'm not obligated to love them, you know, like Democrats, or Obama, you know, or Muslims, you know, or any kind of person you can name people different from me, foreigners, people who don't speak my language, people who don't drive the same kind of car as I drive, don't go to the clubs I go to, people that can't eat in the restaurants that I eat. And you understand how we just love to draw circles and lines where we can figure out who's in and who's out, who's inside the obligation of our love and who's outside the obligation of our love. I mean, it's the burning question, who is not my neighbor? If I'm obligated to love, please tell me, what are the limits of this love? So Jesus tells a story. Here's the story. Let's do it again. Jesus replied, a man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him, they beat him, they left him. Now, when Jesus starts telling this story, there are three things that everybody in his audience knows. Everybody in his audience knows three things. First off, they know that road that goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho, because if you're actually reading the gospel of Luke here and paying attention, you'll know that that's the road they're on. So when Jesus says a man was traveling a certain road, understand it's the road that they're on at that moment. Their feet are standing by the side of this very road. So they know this road, they've traveled it. And anybody who travels that road back in Jesus's day will also know that it is one of the most dangerous roads to travel. It is a long road. There are a lot of hills, there are a lot of places for an ambush. And it is a very, very commonly known place for bandits, for robbers. So when Jesus says a man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he fell among bandits, everybody in the room says, well, of course that's what happened. Of course the idiot should know that he's going to fall among bandits. Everybody knows that road and everybody knows that it is a dangerous place. Also understand it's the oldest trick in the book. The oldest trick in the book is to is to attack somebody perhaps, or, or, or more interestingly, to lay a trap for somebody. So in other words, even back in Jesus' day, one of the ways that, that bandits would fall upon somebody is that they would put somebody in the ditch and, and then hide. You understand? The person in the ditch is either in on it or, or they would literally just beat someone, lay them there, and then that's the bait. So then as people walk along, when they see somebody in the ditch, they come over to help. And then they are ambushed. They are harmed. I mean, it's the oldest trick in the book. It's the old man in the ditch trick. You understand? And so everybody knows that. Everybody knows it's a dangerous road. And everybody knows that one of the ways that you can really get hurt is by going over to try to help somebody. That's the oldest trick in the book. Everybody also knows a little bit of something about Jews and Samaritans, and by now, if you've heard this story preached, you probably know something about Jews and Samaritans, that they hate each other. It goes back for centuries, the animosity between these two races. Jews despise Samaritans, and the feelings are mutual. Absolute hatred between these two groups. The Jews despise despise Samaritans for historical reasons. They despise them for simple reason that they see them as half breeds. They've intermarried with other races, and Jews are proud of their pure bloodline. They just simply despise. Despise Samaritans. Understand that this hatred and, and warfare goes back so far that in Jesus's lifetime, we know of at least one incident when Samaritan terrorists snuck into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and they scattered dead animal parts all over the temple floor. Okay, because that's another thing everybody knows that Jews can't go around dead things. Jews can approach death, especially a a priest or anyone who wants to go into the temple because if you are anywhere near something dead, you will be rendered ceremonially unclean for several days. Okay, so everybody knows these things. Everybody knows that context. So Jesus tells the story of a man who's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he's attacked by bandits. They strip him, they beat him, they leave him. By chance, a priest comes along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, why does he cross to the other side of the road? What do you think? Yeah, because this man looks dead. The scripture says he's half dead. I don't know how you can be half dead. I mean, in my mind, either you're dead or you're not dead. But the fact is, the priest doesn't know. For all appearances, the man looks dead. And so the priest crosses over. The priest is on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the temple. He knows that if he goes anywhere near a dead body, he will not be able to serve. He will not be able to fulfill his duties at the temple. So if anybody has a really good excuse to cross over and pass him by, you think it's the priest. I mean, honestly, he could be out of a job if he renders himself ceremonially unclean. He can't go near a dead body. So the priest passes on by, but don't worry, the music minister comes right behind. The, the music minister comes exactly behind. Uh, by chance, the music minister comes by, he goes over and takes a look. He gets a little bit closer, but he also realizes that this man could be dead or robbers could be hiding in the bushes. The music minister just keeps on walking. And then comes a Samaritan. Yeah, when the people heard Jesus say the word Samaritan, what do you think they thought? Where did their minds go? They probably couldn't possibly imagine how that story would end. If you didn't know the story, would you know how the story would end? I mean, like I said, the story kind of tests us, but, but you could probably feel like you passed the test, the written test anyway, because you know how this story ends, but, but do you see how much like our lives this story is? I mean, kind of start back at the beginning. If you look at the story, there are sort of three attitudes that are obvious in the story and, and in many ways obvious in our lives. The first one is the attitude of the robbers, and that's just simply what's yours is mine. What's yours is mine. When they see the man coming down the road, all they know is he has money, he has something that we want, and we're going to take it. So this is the attitude of the robbers. What's yours is mine, and I am going to have it. What's yours is mine. What you and I know by now, of course, is that the whole world is a bad neighborhood. The entire world is a bad neighborhood because we are surrounded by people who think like this. What's yours is mine. Whatever you have, they want it, and whatever you have, they will take it if they can. And we learn to live in this world, and we learn to defend ourselves in this world. We learn simply to guard what is ours, because the world is full of people who say, what's yours is mine. You then see a second kind of attitude, and unfortunately, you see it in the religious people, and their attitude is more, what's mine is mine. In other words, when the priest sees the man in need and he has every resource at his disposal to help, he will not help because what's mine is mine. What's mine is mine. It is mine until I give it to you and I may choose just not to give it to you. And that's exactly what the priest does. Also the Levite, they simply do not help. They will not share what is theirs because it's theirs. Understand, they have a lot at stake. If they were to stop and help, they could be late to church. If they were to stop and help, understand, they could, they could become ceremonially unclean. If they were to stop and help, they could get blood or pus or whatever on their clothes, on their garments. I mean, you know, you could get something on, on your clean leather car seats if you throw this dead body in the back seat. Understand, there's a lot to lose, and I don't intend to lose what is mine. I'm hanging on to what is mine. I worked for what is mine. It's mine. I hate, I hate how much this statement describes my attitude. I think what bothers me is I haven't always been this guy. I feel like when I was younger, I was a little um, more courageous and generous in helping people. I hate that I'm not that way so much anymore. In some ways, it's, 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 it's ministry that's made me kind of selfish. It's, it's a life of helping people that eventually kind of makes you um, just kind of burned out on people, you know, and not as generous because I've given before and it didn't seem appreciated or sometimes I felt like, you know, I, I just got took. I don't like to be taken. So maybe I've developed kind of a, what's, Mine is mine attitude. Woodburn Baptist Church, we love to help people. We always sort of do that sort of under the table. I mean, everybody knows where the money is. It's, it's well accounted for. But when people come for help, we don't publicize that. We try to protect people. So a lot of that is just people coming in and out and receiving help. And, you know, people don't know about that, but we do a lot of it. I and mean, the thing is we, we keep really good records because we wanna be good stewards of the money. You know, people come in and sometimes I just think, I've seen you 20 times. I've been here 20 years. I've seen you 20 times. I've helped you every Christmas, you know. One lady comes in and I know her and she doesn't recognize me. You know, I mean, I know her. I I recognize her voice on the phone, you know. She goes to so many churches asking for help. She she doesn't, one preacher's like another. She doesn't even remember what we've given her. She doesn't remember the day that I gave her bottles of water and she said, don't you have any Diet Coke? it 's just people like that that make me think, man why, why are we giving money to people who don't probably don 't even need it it 's part of why I love Warren Weeks. Warren is so good, and, and Warren now does so much of the, of the the helping people through the week he 's sort of the office pastor he 's always here. Um, I love when Warren does these things for our church. His heart's not hard. y'all know Warren, he is not warm and fuzzy. (laughs) He's just not. He's not going to get a hug. You know, he's not going to give him a hug or any kind of warm fuzzy. He won't give him a kiss on the cheek, man. They won't be getting that from Warren. but, But he will help and he will share Christ in the process. And he is one of the most unselfish and compassionate men that I've ever worked with. God help us. It's the religious people in the story that have this attitude of "What's mine is mine, and I will I will hang on to it." I don't want to be that pastor. I don't. I don't want to be that man. I don't want to live in the world where people think like this and operate like this. I want to be in the world that that the Samaritan represents here. His attitude is so different. He simply says, what's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. It's the most... Liberating and wonderful way to live. When what you have, you have, but you you hold it loosely. If I if I've got it and you need it, it's yours. It's just already yours. It's not what's mine is mine. What's mine is yours. If you need it, take it. I mean, don't you want to live like that? Don't you want to be in that world? It's the Samaritan. He's the least likely one you would think to have that attitude, but it's the attitude that he has. I mean, when he says Samaritan, they go back to the Samaritans who defiled the temple with dead animal parts, and they hate Samaritans, and Samaritans are enemies, and no, Jesus preaches love your enemies. Nobody ever hears that because we don't accept the idea of love without limits. So when the Samaritan walks into the story, everybody expects the worst, but that's not what you get because you got to see this man's heart. What's mine is yours. We don't know where the Samaritan's going, but he's traveling. He's not out for a joy ride. He's got places to be and and people to see too. He's, He's not less important than the priest or the music minister, but he stops. He still stops. Whatever he was doing is no longer as important as a man in the ditch. Do you get that? I mean, no matter what else, you can say there's a man in the ditch. And that now takes priority over everything else. He stops and he goes to work. I don't know. He he seems to have a first aid kit in the glove compartment. He does what he can. He has olive oil. He has some bandages. I don't know what he used for a bandage. Understand, we're not talking band-aids here. We're probably talking about tearing strips off of his own robe to make a bandage. You understand? I mean, he just starts doing whatever is necessary to take care of this man throws him across the back of his very own donkey. That means he's walking now. And he walks to an inn. He goes to Motel 6, understand. And he puts the man up in a room. But if you notice here, it looks like he stays the night with him. I mean, it looks like that to me because it's the next morning when he says, hey, we'll settle up later. It really looks like he spends the night. Would you do that? Motel room with a stranger who could wake up in the middle of the night and kill you in your sleep. How can you think like that I means a man that needs help tells the innkeeper listen here 's what I got now. Swipe my credit card and keep my number, and i 'll check back man. whatever this man requires for as long as he 's got to stay to get on his get on his way uh i 'll be good for it what 's mine is yours. Do you remember when you used to think more like that too? You remember when you were more giving and, and, and more joyful in giving i, I know I know who i 'm talking to. I know this church. I know that this church, by your generosity, you took clean water to over a hundred families in a village in Southeast Asia on the other side of the world. This church did that I, I know how generous and good you can be here at church though I, I guess what i don 't know is how many people you left. In the ditch on the way to here, you know what I'm saying? How, how many people you pass by to put your money in this plate? This is what we don't know, and understand your obligation doesn't beginning begin and end as you walk in and out of the doors of this church. Your, your obligation is love without limits. Your obligation is to the entire world. So, in case you've forgotten. A couple of hard lessons about love from this scripture. Um, The first one is is obvious. You are to love everyone and especially anyone in need. You are to love everyone. That doesn't just mean people of your race. Doesn't just mean people that you click with automatically. It doesn't just mean people you work with or people inside your family. Everyone means everyone. You love enemies, according to Jesus. You you love, and especially people in need. Especially people in need. If your heart doesn't break in the face of someone who has need, there's something wrong with your heart. Because God's heart breaks for every single person who suffers. You are to love everyone and especially people in need brother tim aren't you being just a little bit naive i mean you get involved with people and 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 it gets kind of complicated i know let's talk about it It gets very very complicated so let's just list it here we go love makes you stop what you're doing for longer than you expect that's just kind of a rule of life so accept that you're gonna to have to stop what you're doing. You're busy. I know that you're busy. You're very, very busy and you have very important things to do. I mean, you got Wheel of Fortune waiting at 630. I understand how full your life is. But if you're going to love people, people are gonna to have to become more important than everything else in your life. People become priority and especially people in need. And you're gonna to have to stop what you're doing. You're going to have to stop. You're going to have to be late you're going to have to miss something. You're going to have to interrupt your life for the sake of love. It's what the Samaritan does. It's what Jesus does. It's what people who follow Jesus will do. You stop what you're doing and you're going to have to stop it for longer than you expect. The Samaritan loses probably 24 hours out of his life. He doesn't think twice. He doesn't count that cost. You need to stop thinking about that too. Love makes you stop what you're doing for longer than you expect. Next, next rule. Love always costs more than you expect. Now you're thinking going in, okay, this guy on the side of the road. Okay, I got about seventy-five cents worth of bandages in that. Take him to a motel. See, it's probably gonna be that could be eighty-five dollars for the night. I will get my AAA discount. Maybe I'll I'll use my new senior adult discount, something like that. And uh, uh, but understand, it's just costly. It's always costly. It's not just money, although you and I should be a little more willing to turn loose of money. It's the emotional cost. And sometimes we'd rather give money than, than give our hearts. But it's just, you remember, heart, mind, soul, strength. It's, it's the whole package. Love always costs more than you expect. It's going to cost more. And the freedom comes when you can do this without necessarily keeping up with the tab. If you just learn to give to people, just give and don't expect anything in return. Don't keep score. Just give because God is so freely giving to you. You just give freely because love is always going to cost more than you expect. Next, it's going to turn out to be a whole lot messier than you thought. You never have any idea going in how bloody this man's going to be when you put him in the back seat of your car. You never have any idea when you say, listen, you just keep up with the tab and when I get back, I'll pick up. See, what you don't know is when this man finally gets his strength back, he's going to go to that mini fridge and start drinking those Diet coasts that cost six bucks a piece. And he's going to eat the little nuts, and he's going to just clean all of that out, and you're going to have the tab. And you didn't expect that. And then it's also going to turn out that he's going to end up, you know, going to court. He's going to sue those guys that beat him up and left him, and you're going to have to, you know, testify in court, and you're going to miss days of work. I'm telling you, it's always going to get messier than you thought. But but can you just not accept that? that? That love is costly, and love takes a lot of time, and that it's just messy? Because honestly, if you find a person in the ditch, just get over and accept the idea that his life is already messy and you're not gonna step in to help him without somehow getting the mess on you. It's messy. It's always messier than you ever expect. And here you go. It's gonna take a whole lot more effort than most people are willing to give. Love always takes more effort than most people are willing to give. If it were easy, everybody would do it, but it's not easy. And that's why a man can lay in the ditch while people just continue to pass by. So the man wanted to uh, justify himself. He wanted to save face because he had asked a question that he kind of already knew the answer to. And so he said, uh, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. Now, the first question, Jesus is, boom. I mean, he just, you know, boom. He, he had the answer that just shut that man down. I mean, shut him down. And Jesus can do that. He can answer a question so directly that just shuts him down. But, but when the man asks the second question, who's my neighbor or who's not my neighbor, Jesus doesn't give a direct shut down kind of answer. He tells a story. Why does he do that? Because I don't know how to say this. Jesus isn't answering the question. He's answering the man. That makes perfect sense in my head. Does it make any sense in your head? He's not answering the question. He's answering the man. He's answering the soul. He's answering the question that the man doesn't ask, can't form. And in the process, the the answer that Jesus gives shifts the question. Do you notice that? If the question is, who is my neighbor, or who's not my neighbor, that's not necessarily the question by the time you get to the end of the story. Notice that. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor? That's the question Jesus asked at the end. The man said, who is my neighbor? Who's not my neighbor? But Jesus says at the end of the story, now, which of these men was a neighbor to the man in the ditch? It's, it's a different question. It's, it's not, who is my neighbor? The question becomes for Jesus, to whom can I be a neighbor? can I be a neighbor to? It's it's a very different question, but it's the question that most needs the answer. You understand that? I've told you all about the day I was at Fern Terrace. It's an adult living facility. It's not really a nursing home. Uh, It's it's an amazing place. Uh, I was preaching on love one day, and I know that Fern Terrace is a hard place to be. They're not nursing home patients. They're adults who, for whatever other reason, can't really live alone. So these people are healthy. They're not getting nursing care. They're energetic um, and, 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 in some cases, difficult. And it's hard to live there because you can't really lock your doors. You have to leave your doors open. And people are in and out of each other's room. They, they argue a lot. That They steal. Uh, it, it's hard. And so I was preaching on love for the, those at Terrace that day who wanted to come to worship with me. And I ended the ended the lesson like this. I, I say, how many of you would love to walk out of this room right now and, and meet somebody who's just going to be a true friend to you? I mean, every every hand in the room shot up. Oh, oh! You know, how do you like to go out into that kitchen, walk out in that dining room, and and meet somebody who's going to be a true friend? Somebody who's going to love you for who you are. Oh, oh! And the funny thing is, this is there's this toothless lady on the front row who was all about this. She was just like, oh. Just like a kid in class who really wanted to answer the question, she was going, ugh, uh, uh. Every time I would ask it again, she'd go, ugh. Like she wanted it so desperately. How many you want to walk out of this room and find somebody who will love you, somebody who would help you every time you're in need? And she was like, ugh. I mean, she wanted that. I know she wanted it. How many of you like to walk out and and in just a minute, shake the hand, look into the face of somebody who will love you unconditionally, who will forgive you, who will help you, who will give you anything you need? How many of you like to walk out and and, and shake the hand of a true friend? And she's just like, and then I said, okay, everybody, let's walk out and be that person. The lady on the front row going, uh," when I said, be that person, she went. (laughs) She did. She grunted at me. What was she saying? Oh, we're in trouble. Yeah. She liked the idea that going out and finding all of these people who were going to be like neighbors to her. Walk out and find somebody that'll help you. Somebody who would take you out of the ditch. Somebody who would come by and give you whatever they had if you needed it. Somebody to be your friend and just love you no matter what. She wanted to find that person more than anything in the world, but she was not gonna be willing to be that person. So Jesus says, "Um, which of these men was a neighbor To the man in the ditch the uh, Old Testament scholar said uh, well the one who loved him the one who showed him mercy Jesus said you go and you be that one you go be that man you go be the one that loves shows mercy understand it yet it's 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 a test and you're being tested it's not about knowing the story it's about being the person it's about being the person who loves everyone love everyone Pray with me. God, the world is so filled with people in need. And God, honestly, we feel like if we just started giving what we have at the end of the day, we'd have nothing left. We would give it all away because the world is filled with people in need. Lord, just teach us to give. Help us, Lord, just to give. Help us, Lord, to stop looking for ways to include or exclude people, those who might be worthy of our love or those who might not be worthy of our love. Lord, just help us to love. God, you are the God of love, who is love from the beginning, who knows us completely. You, of all minds, know that we are not worthy of your perfect, unconditional love, and yet you just love us. Now, put that kind of love in our hearts. God, some of us used to have a heart much more tender, but our hearts have grown hard. Some of us, Lord, used to be very bold and courageous in getting involved with others, but we've learned to play it safe. Oh, Lord Jesus, you did not play it safe. You went to the cross for the sake of the world. So, Lord Jesus, may we stop counting our pennies and wondering whether or not it's worth the cost to love people. Help us to love with all of our minds and all of our hearts and all of our strength. Help us to love other people more than we love ourselves and we love ourselves a great deal. Lord, some of us have been the one in the ditch before and we know what it is to need help and watch people pass by. Help us, Lord, never to forget what it feels like to be in the ditch. And those of us this, Lord, this week, who will be seeing people in ditches, oh, God, make it so that we do not turn the other way and pass by. Give us love. Give us the courage to stop what we're doing. Help us to love whatever the cost, whatever effort is involved. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to love the way you love everyone without limits. We pray these things in the name of the Savior.